Past, Present, Future Live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Dave Dieterer of the Presidents of the United States of America. Dave is best known for his work with the Presidents, who of course soared to the top of the charts in 1995 with their self-titled album that had the mega hits, Lump and Peaches. But the Presidents and Dave have a really interesting and rich history that we dig into in this interview. We talk about the Seattle alternative rock scene of the 80s and 90s that they were a part of, and the authenticity and fun that they were communicating at their high-energy shows. We also discussed making it big, how they always took care of the business side of their music, and how Dave took this experience into the music industry. Dave talked about the changes in music and technology, and his thoughts on how bands can now succeed in a completely different environment. After the interview, you'll hear Dave perform I'd Have to Be Crazy and Moonlight in Vermont, which you can also watch on our show page. And you can see a Spotify playlist for this episode in our show notes. And now here's my interview with Dave Dieterer. All right, I'm here with Dave. How you doing, Dave? I'm great. I'm here up in the Seattle area. I'm actually on Vashon Island. It's a beautiful place out in the middle of Puget Sound. And it's, it's kind of cloudy today, but it's all right. It's all right. I want to go all the way back. Do you have an earliest musical memory? I have a very, very vivid memory, and I don't know how old I was. It was um, my when I was a little kid, my family had one car. It was a Ford Galaxy 500 white with a red interior. And I remember getting in the car with my mom once, and the radio must have been on when she turned on the ignition. And I was in the back seat, and <clears throat> she, she started the car, and there was just some crazy, awesome, raucous dancing music that came out of the radio. And I recall jumping up in the back seat and, you know, standing on the back seat and grabbing the back of the front bench headrest and and starting to get into it. And then her turning it off and me being like, no, 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 you know, <laughs> turn it on again. And I would guess and or would like to think it was like, you know, Otis Redding or Wilson Pickett or I mean, it was something like that. Mm -hmm. the, that's the music I hear now that that makes me feel that way. Something high energy and, um, you know, rhythmic and uh, dancey. Amazing how many of those early memories revolve around being in the car, right? It's just such a such a mode yeah. of music back in the day. It. And it's still where I listen to the most mm. music. I mean, it's kind of the place where, you know, I'm kind of busy doing something else, driving the freaking car, but mostly I'm unoccupied. And that's the place and time where, you know, I can still really get into music. Nice. And was there a lot of music playing around your house? Were your, was your family musical? Neither my mom nor dad nor my stepdad are musical in the sense of playing music. But they they loved they all loved and still love music. Um, so there was lots of music in the house, and you know my mom was a stay at home mom, so we were at home with her most of the time. 
she loved like I remember Bob Dylan playing basically nonstop when I was a kid. Also, you know, kind of our extended family and um, quasi family members. We had lots of parties at our house, lots of big gatherings. And at some point, you know, records would always get put on and people would dance, you know, and that would be like a, you know, Ella Fitzgerald Gershwin mm-hmm, songbook mm-hmm. or something. People would get into it. Or my mom's best friend, Jane Pease, her husband, Fred, um, was kind of an amateur musician. He was just a guy with a good ear and he played, he had a nylon string guitar and he had, they always had a piano in their house. And then, um, so he would always be playing the guitar and singing, you know, some Bob Dylan song or some old timey barroom song. And I'd kind of join in with him. And then when I started playing the guitar, when I was 12 or 13, we were still hanging out with them all the time. And he, there was another guy named Don Ramey, who had been a pretty, he was a lawyer, but he'd been a, um, put himself through college and law school performing in Chicago and then in Seattle, kind of, he played the banjo and sang, you know, like, won't you come home, Bill Mm -hmm, Bailey, mm -hmm. and every folk song you've ever known, he could sing great harmony. So they were really nice to me. They would kind of encourage me always to bring my guitar and I couldn't, it was really a struggle for me to even follow along these three and four chord songs, but they were super encouraging. So um, there, that was when I first got exposed to being around other people who, who played music other than my peers. And that was my first chance to like, oh, this is cool. You like pick up a guitar in a room full of people and the whole experience is amplified for everybody. I, I was drawn to that for sure. Were you um, were you kind of obsessed with music at that point or, or not yet? I've been obsessed with understanding music and figuring out how it's put together and how to put it together. I never actually until the last four or five years have gotten obsessed with like being super, super facile on my instrument. Mm. I was always more interested in the music, how it all fits together and how people play in a room and communicate with other people than being like Eddie Van Halen sitting in my room for six hours a day. I mean, from an early age, the end of grade school, I was going to the store and buying records and listening to them and trying to understand what was going on and like, how did they do that? And, and, And that's still my greatest strength as a musician is I just, I love it and feel it uh, in a way. And you you meet people who are incredibly skilled on their instrument who just don't feel mm. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can tell. Mm-hmm. You played in some bands also. Was that sort of growing up in high school time or, or were you? Yeah. I mean, my school at the time had a lot of people who played music and were pretty good at it. Chris and I from the presidents both went to the middle school and high school I went to. Um, so we were both there. Um, there was a guy a year older than me named Al Anderson who had a band called Pop Defect who were kind of, you know, big in the underground world through the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. um, in L.A. And it's a guy a couple of years older than me who ended up playing the piano for the Metropolitan Opera. There were a few guys a few years younger than me who had a band called Sweetwater, who had a two or three different record deals and a minor radio hit in 95 or 96. Do you think the music scene in Seattle at the time was something that was giving all these kids like ideas or, or background in music? I mean, why, why were so many kids from your school and in your peer group, like how could that many musicians go on to become successful in music? 
I talk about this all the time with friends, especially like, um, so Duff McKagan and I are the same age, mm -hmm. right? And we, we knew each other like toward the end of grade school and into high school. And um, he went to public school all the way through high school, but my best friends from grade school became his best friends in, in junior high and high school. And um, then he and I reconnected like 25 years ago. Um, so he and I knew each other. Stone from Pearl Jam is a family friend. I'm actually named after his dad. Like his dad was one of my dad's wow. two or three best friends, which is crazy. Yeah. And then Mike McCready lived in my neighborhood and went to the same grade school as I did. He was a couple of years younger than I was. Um, and Matt Cameron, who, you know, is in Soundgarden and Pearl Jam now, like the one of the first gigs he ever had was at a talent show I put on when I worked at this crazy communist pizza restaurant when I was like 19. So I've talked about it with these guys. Sometimes it's like, how the hell did, you know, this group of people who all came from this little provincial town end up? you know, resulting in like 200 million records sold or whatever mm -hmm, it is. Mm -hmm. And you've probably read it before. Obviously, it's kind of rainy and crappy in Seattle all winter, and there's not much to do, right? There wasn't much to do in Seattle at that time. Um, it's very different now. It was, really was a small provincial city. So pretty much like go in someone's basement or garage and drink beer, mm -hmm. smoke pot if you could get some, and play music was a thing to do. It was a very open scene with kind of no rules, and there was good crossover between the kind of the visual, progressive visual art scene and the, you know, rock and roll scene, you know, galleries. There were shows in galleries all the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. um, so there was just a very open, fertile environment with very, very low cost of living. We used to just, you know, rent a hall for a hundred bucks and bring in a stage and a PA and, you know, charge $2 to get in or whatever. Yeah. It was really, really easy to do stuff like that. Like, you know, 83 to 85, I was in these bands that nobody's heard of or cared about, but we played at the places downtown and we were around and going to the other shows and part of that world and knew everybody because everybody knew everybody else, right? Yeah. I mean, it's only like 273 people in the whole scene. So tell us how the presidents came together. Um, I've, I've read a couple stories about it, but if you don't mind running us through your your kind of uh, recollection. I'll give you the short version. So we came together because Chris Ballou and I started playing music. We went to school together from middle school, to middle school and high school. He was a year behind me. He, uh, despite the school being tiny, we weren't pals in middle school or high school. He was actually pretty good friends with my sister. Um, and then I think it was the year he graduated from high school and I was back, just back from my freshman year of college or the next year, our school was having an alumni event in the sun in the courtyard in June. And they invited, they're like, oh, you guys both play music. Why don't you just bring some instruments and play background music? And he brought a keyboard. He's a great piano player. Mm -hmm. And I brought a guitar, acoustic guitar, and I'll never forget the first song we played together was Dear Prudence by the Beatles. And he and I, uh, from the word go, we just had like a magical musical connection. We just had some kind of kismet, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. So we were both moving around for eight or nine years after that. 
But whenever we were in Seattle, we would record together. We'd put together a band and play shows. Like two or three summers in a row, we had this band, the Dukes of Pop, which you can find our cassette online. Nice. It's really great recording <laughs> and we played at this famous open mic in seattle and we just ruled it for like three summers we were the kings of the last exit coffee house open mic then um in the very early 90s chris was back in seattle for like nine months and we had a band called go with our friend Dave Thiele on drums. And Jason Finn, later in The Presidents, mm -hmm. saw one of our shows. And he, I gave him a lap dance while I played a guitar <laughs> solo. We were, and, he, and, then the, and he was already like a big rock star in Seattle, right? He was in this band called Love Battery, who made three records on Sub Pop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he had been in Skin Yard, who made, you know, he's kind of is on the first nominally grunge record. He plays drums with Jack and Dino and Skin Yard on okay. that record. And he was a bartender at the Comet Tavern. He was known at the time as the Pope of Pike Street. He was like the coolest guy in town. So anyway, he saw this band Chris and I had in like 1990 or 91. Uh, and meantime, Chris and I would collaborate and trade cassettes. And we had a running joke with Jason that's, you know, our next band, he was going to be in okay. the band. He's like, whatever, <laughs> next, ba next band you have, I'm the drummer. All right. And um, okay, of course, r running joke, because we're a couple of dorks and he's a big rock star. So Chris moves back to Seattle in the fall of 1993. I had a rehearsal space at the time. For some reason, I had was renting a rehearsal space, sharing it with the Posies and Flop, who later were signed to Sony Music, great band, and maybe Seven Year Bitch, so woman band from Seattle, okay. who also eventually got signed, I think, to Capitol. Anyway, I had a rehearsal space. Chris moved back to Seattle. He had a batch of new songs, and we did what we always did, which is we just got in a room and started practicing together. And um, all his songs this time were in kind of a funny open tuning, which I quickly adapted to. So that fall of 1993, we played, I don't know, seven or eight shows as a duo with no drummer. Mm -hmm each playing like a really crappy like $30 electric guitar with you know reduced number of strings in an open tuning a lot of times we plug into the same amp i had this beat up twin reverb that was actually my best friend kermit's i didn't even own an amp at the time <laughs> we started playing these shows under some different names the first few shows we were the dynamic duo we were pure frosting which is a name we later used for one of <laughs> yeah, our albums yeah. we were um the lo-fis Anyway, we were playing, and um, you have to remember, it's 1993. Mm -hmm. There are people like moving from Phoenix to Seattle, and you know, buying Doc Martens and flannel mm -hmm. shirts and and long johns, you know, and the, and dressing up and have the long hair and like playing these shows with their like these huge walls of Marshall stacks and lots of hair and really loud and everybody like you know. Bah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we would get up there. It would be Chris bald. He, for years, wore these work boots spray-painted gold. That was kind of his patented mm -hmm. thing. And I was, at the time, just starting graduate school, and I was just being my preppy, dorky self. So I'd be in, like, a Brooks Brothers, you know, button-down shirt with a grain belt and some jeans and some saddle shoes. And we'd both have these shitty $30 guitars. No drummer. Mm -hmm. And we would open with a verse, fuzzed out version of Iggy and the Stooges TVI. And people just like, what the <laughs> fuck are you guys doing? But I will say at that point, we were not 
young anymore. We are in our late 20s. And to be totally frank, by that point, we kind of knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd made lots of mistakes in how we played and what we did and how we presented ourselves. So we were good. And um, so Jason begged for a couple months to be in the band, and we had long debates about it because even at that time, Chris had tinnitus and his ears were Mm -hmm. really bad. Mm -hmm. And we finally agreed that if we let him use kind of a small drum kit all taped up with small cymbals, which we stuck with for most of the band's career, that he could be in the band. And I have to say, you know, the first time we rehearsed with him, it was just total magic. And if it, for the people out there who play music, I mean, it, that is just the most ecstatic experience because you can spend years trying to put something together like, oh, you know, so-and-so is great on bass and I like this guy on drums and another guitar player. And you get in a room and it, it just, there's no energy. And we just had like instantly this mat, like we couldn't do anything wrong. You know, we didn't even have to rehearse basically. Like we could just get in a room and start playing and it was magic. And that continued throughout and that was true when we played the first show. i'll never forget the first show we played with jason it's it's now a mixed use retail condo building i drove by the other day but there was this funky little club that was not one of the main rock clubs in town called the romper room mm-hmm. and um you could kind of on off nights you could come in and be one of two or three bands on the bill and we played there a couple times as a duo and started to build a crowd. Uh, yeah, the first time we played with Jason, it was us and the Seattle punk rock band, the Kent Three, who were around a long time. And we played before them. And it was, you know, it was a place with no stage, like it's just flat, mm-hmm. right? You're on the same level as the audience. You carry your gear on stage, you play and you carry it off. So we go on, we play out, and there's like a hundred people there um, getting drunk and having losing their minds. and. And the Kent Three were good. They were respectable, respected, solid punk rock band. And I'll never forget, we did our set, and I literally walked off stage, you know, like with my guitar still around my neck and my cables and pedals in one hand and my twin reverb in my other hand. Then the Kent Three guys were standing next to the what passed for the stage. And as I walked by, one of the guys from the Kent Three just looked at me as like his mouth was kind of agape, and he just said, that is the single best rock show I have ever seen in my wow. life. I was like, okay, well, we must be on to something. What, what was it? I don't know. I say it without any arrogance whatsoever because I don't feel that I can take any credit for it. Like I said, it was just a great combination of three people. And somehow we just had a magical thing between the three mm. of us. And we've all... are have been and are good at playing music in other contexts and with other people but it was just like the whole was so much more than the sum of its parts it was just um kind of shocking and 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 honestly for the from there until we broke up in 1998 we just kind of rode that wave for about five years it was like we could not do anything wrong musically business-wise anything we just kind of it's like when you know when you're playing basketball and you go 10 shots in a row with just nothing but net. It was mm-hmm, like we were mm-hmm. totally in the zone for years. It was, and I was aware of it at the time. I was like, we are in the zone. There's no fucking way this is going to last, but let's enjoy it while it while it's going. Wow. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to ask, it seems like you guys were having fun up there and you were playing music that you felt good about. I'm sure that the the audience was able to feel that. And you mentioned riding the wave. I mean, the 1995 self-titled album, uh, of course, which is what most people know as, as you know, yeah. the seminal uh, president's record went platinum and you guys are suddenly, I mean, at least it seems like suddenly you guys are like one of the, your mega stars. Um, it, it, did it feel like that? I mean, did it feel like suddenly? No, you were, I didn't never feel like we were pretenders. Like, in the real part of it where you're like, okay, we're going to go on stage in front of people in a room. I felt like we could kick any other band's ass a hundred percent. I was never afraid to go on after anybody, you know, in terms of, you know, all journalism, marketing, posturing aside, the actual act of being in front of an audience playing mm -hmm. music, I would have put us up against anybody at the time. And also that was even more amplified by us we were so weird, and I still think this. I hear our songs on mainstream rock radio sometimes, and I just think, how the hell did this ever get on the radio? So, it was, because it sounds so different. I mean, the instrumentation's different, but also the production and and all elements of it are are different. So, as Chris once said, he's like, "Okay, guys," he said he realized very early on, like you can't be kind of goofy and suck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be going that far off the reservation, you have to be good. That was not weird. I felt like we belonged in the sense of what we were doing musically was at the highest level, I thought. The rest of it, we really, I don't know, maybe we should have taken it more seriously. We kind of made a decision early on, like, we had a common understanding that it was all smoke and mirrors, which it mm -hmm, is. Mm-hmm. And we agreed that we would do things basically, except in very, very, very rare cases, we did it with a full majority vote, right? No two against one. We, we all had to be into doing Got something. It. And that went from, you know, like if, if Chris brought in a new song idea, if all three of us weren't instantly into it, we weren't going to hmm. do it because we'd all been in bands where everybody wants to have the band do their song, right? So everybody plays shit they don't like. We'd learned that lesson. We're like, no. So from the, the basic level of here's this verse and a chorus, am I into it? Yes or no. To, you know, business decisions we made, we did it 100% our own mm -hmm. way, which mm -hmm. I'm proud of. We really, truly were. I mean, punk rock is an overused phrase, and I don't claim to be anybody's punk, but we truly didn't give a shit about what anybody else thought. And we made all of our artistic and business decisions 100% based on our own, you know, kind of what we wanted to do. That had repercussions, but I don't regret any of it. So it, it is super weird. I mean, there is all that stuff where like all of a sudden you're going to events like the Grammys and mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. and you're around this whole scene. But that scene is so stupid. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is so ridiculous that you kind of just have to look at it as a, like a, you know, a ride at Disneyland yeah. or something. It's not. Um, and that's how we looked at it. I'll never forget um, in the summer of 1995, our record came out uh, on records used to come out on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the third Tuesday in July, uh, lump had already been added at many stations. Um, 
in heavy rotation. It was quickly on its way to being a number one modern rock sing- single within weeks of that. And the month of August, we spent flying around the U.S. doing a promo tour. And I'll never forget, I think it was the first, and it must have been in late June, early July, we had shot the Lump video. And I remember we were, God knows, somewhere in some motel, hotel. Chris and I were sharing a room still at that point. And I think Buzzbin was on Friday nights on MTV, and that was kind of the hit maker at the time. And our manager had let us know, okay, you guys, your first spin of the Lump video is going to be on MTV tonight on Buzzbin. It's going to be the first video, which is like midnight Eastern time or whenever the show started. Uh-huh. And I remember Chris, Chris and I were in the, our hotel or motel room, and the song came on, the video came on, which, you know, of course we'd seen it because we'd edited it, but it's got the little MTV Chiron uh-huh, on yeah. it. And it's really happening. And we just freaked out. You know, we're like jumping up and down in the beds because that was the moment you're talking about. That's like, holy shit. You know, we've went from the basement to MTV. Yeah. And that was a thrill. But I vividly remember like, and the songs, this all happened in two minutes, 11 seconds, because that's how long the song is. I vividly remember like halfway through the song thinking, oh shit, that is the end of everything authentic about us and what was organic and weird because now we're the three dudes in suits jumping around singing this song <laughs> we're just another we're just another you know can of soda pop we're just another tube of clearasil we're just another youth product that's going to get marketed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we went from being this very weird organic thing to oh crap i guess that's anything that's authentic about this is over. But you were, were you still having fun in the live show setting? Like you're going, playing bigger shows, touring around um, as you're, you know, kind of taking advantage of this moment Were the, were the shows still fun and was it, did it still feel fun to be making music? It was always fun to make music and the stuff around it did get, I mean, I personally found a lot of that pretty stressful. Um, I'm not, as Jason once said, when we were in the middle of getting courted by record labels, he's like, ah, you're not the most relaxed guy in the world. <laughs> um, so I'm wound pretty tight and I found the whole thing fairly stressful. Mm-hmm. But every single time we got on stage and plugged in and turned on, it was total magic. I never lost that. I mean, it was always that 75 or 90 minutes on stage was just ecstatic. And now, a brief inaugural message from the Presidents of the United States of America. And now back to our interview with Dave Dieterer. You mentioned um, a little while ago talking about kind of making the right decisions business-wise about music. And and you have gone on to, to spend a lot of your career in the music industry from the business side. What, what did you guys do right and what did you do wrong in those 
early days, especially as you were getting successful? That's a great question. Nobody's ever really asked yes. that. Um, let's see, what did we do right and what did we do wrong? Well, I think long-term we did a couple things right. One was we just were very attentive to our bottom line and our margin. And even though we had a manager and business manager and accountants, I was always kind of I and actually all of us were really, you know, we would be on tour like we'd run into right when they first started touring. We played some shows here and there with the Foo Fighters and we knew some of those guys from Seattle and they'd have like, you know, the four of them in the band and like six or eight crew mm -hmm. members. We had the three of us in the band and like one crew member. So we were always super thoughtful about, okay, how much money are we actually going to make doing this? So I think in general, that was smart given that, you know, there are lots of artists who sell four or five million records or more who end up broke or in debt. And we definitely did not. We all went and bought houses and, you know, uh, Chris and I raised families and, you know, I've done other work and Chris is doing his kids music thing now, which is successful. And Jason has had various uh, restaurant investments and mm -hmm. stuff, but, you know, Jason hasn't had a normal job in 25 mm -hmm. years or mm -hmm. 30 years. So, so we were smart about making sure that the money that came into us was not didn't disappear. We were very attentive to the details of our finances. Uh, and the other smart thing we did was we decided we are either going to sign a handshake deal record or we're going to grab the brass ring and sign a major label record with somebody who can sell records all mm -hmm. over the world because we had had a number of indie label offers right when you know within the first few months we started getting a lot of attention. And we realized that the indie labels offers were just as onerous as the major label offers in terms of your obligation to the label mm. and how many records you were locked up for. But indie labels had no resources. They, could, they couldn't distribute your record worldwide. They, could, they had no money to market it. So we ended up doing exactly what we said we would do, which is sign a handshake deal with Conrad Uno um, and Pop Llama Records and put out our debut record with him. And then um, we uh, um, then licensed that record to Sony when we signed with Sony. And that other super smart thing we did is we didn't sell them that record. We licensed it to mm -hmm. them. Then we got the rights to that record back in 2003. So we are the label for that record. And that has been great. Amazing. So, we, you know, we get, we get 70 cents on the dollar instead of 7 cents on the dollar when we stream a song or... Uh, otherwise gets used or license a song. So those were all smart things and they all paid off in the long run. And I would say we were smart to do it our own way because we always had the, you know, the courage of our convictions, right? We didn't really ever have to second guess what we were doing because we did it based on values, not on trying to weigh financial pros and cons. The things that we could have done better um, are first manager and then for a while manager when we got back together, Stacy Slater. Hi, Stacy. I love you. You're amazing. Stacy was absolutely incredible during the process where we were getting courted by labels, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, we never spent a penny to fly anywhere to do showcases or do anything. Um, she managed that incredibly well. Then when all of a sudden, a few months later, we had a massive hit album, we could have used more experienced mm -hmm. manager. And if we had been more ruthless and more mercenary, we probably should have fired Stacy at that time and hired, you know, Q Prime or somebody like that. But we didn't. And um, I love Stacy, and she did right by us. And 
So that was that probably from a purely commercial standpoint was a bad decision, but you know, I also can still go to sleep at night thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, maybe we should have been more intentional about you know, who we aligned ourselves with and how we tried to make ourselves look cooler. But I don't know. We just didn't give a mm-hmm. shit. It's like I, Chris had been in in Beck's band, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, right as the presidents took off, he got an offer to go on tour on the Mellow Gold tour, playing bass and keyboards and guitar. And he did. And um, he got kicked out of the band a few months later for smiling too much on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, like... Being too enthusiastic and positive on stage. And at that time, Beck was, you know, he was like hanging out with Sonic Youth and trying to be all mm-hmm, cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we just never postured in any way or thought about, you know, how we looked. We just did whatever the hell we wanted and let people form their own opinions. That seems to be a little bit of a theme because the, well, the Beck example is a good one. And just like the, you know, not being allowed to to smile and and like you mentioned being goofy on stage on purpose but also being good and the seattle music scene and the grunge scene was so serious you know from pearl jam and nirvana and on and on and on and you mentioned the people coming into town and kind of trying to become part of that scene was the having fun and being yourselves did it feel like you were bringing some levity to uh to this like overly serious self-important kind of scene that was that was exploding well, that's the way people wrote about it. I mean, you just mentioned like going on stage and being goofy on purpose. We weren't doing it on purpose. We were just kind of doing, Chris and I were doing what we'd always done, which was write these kind of pop songs and be positive and yeah. energetic. You know, we were, as anybody who gets successful, resented by certain members of the community. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of part of the knock. Like it, Like we were some kind of like super smart marketing geniuses who figured out that like Seattle was you know, overdosed on negativity and we were going to make the goofiest, funniest band because that would be the antidote. Uh, Nothing could be further from the Mm -hmm. truth. That's just what we Mm -hmm. do. And also, we felt like we were much more aligned with a longer tradition in Seattle than grunge, which is this kind of good time garage party rock. Mm. And you go back the furthest, you go to the Whalers and the Sonics and the Kingsmen starting in the very end of the 50s and through the 60s and Paul Revere and the Raiders, these bands that were like, still are the seminal kind of garage rock bands of all time. So that was a very, very strong tradition in Seattle. And there were bands in the 80s and 90s who did that, who didn't quite break through, like the Young Fresh Fellows, who had been around forever. And the Fastbacks were another band that were like a kind of power pop band. So there's a long, deep, rich history in Seattle that long predates anything grungy that is this kind of just like good time party rock and roll, you know, unhinged music i mean if and if anybody's listening to this and has never heard the sonics um you've probably heard the witch you know garage rock classic go listen to the sonics i mean that's kind of what it's all about so people did call us out for being kind of like the anti-grunge but we weren't trying to do that i mean look jason was our drummer he fucking invented grunge he was on the first skin yard album so we were just playing music that we wanted to play. And we love all those bands. Yes. And when I look back on some of that stuff now, I'm just, my mind boggles at how good it is. And I heard Chris say in an interview the other day that he heard 
the first Nirvana record. He was living in Boston at the time. He's like, he, he remembered thinking, well, oh, that's the music I've been trying to make. I guess I don't need to make it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a way, that's a way better version of the music I've been trying to make for the last few years. I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> so yeah, we were just doing what we were doing. We, you know, a lot of it as anybody who's ever had any kind of exceptional success and who is honest will tell you a lot of it's luck. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously anybody who's good at anything has worked super hard, mm -hmm. right? But a lot of that is just like luck in terms of being in the right place at the right time in terms of the zeitgeist and, you know, a million different factors have to come together that you have zero control yeah. over. Yeah, luck is a big part of life, it turns out. <laughs> it really know. is. It's an understated yeah, fact. Yeah. So you went into the music industry uh, as part of a, a company, well, a few companies, but what what made you kind of, in 2007, I think, you, you joined um, Melodia, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it started long before that. Like, I mean, I was in grad school in urban design and planning when the band started. I'd already had a couple careers. I was not young. I was 30 when we signed a record deal. And kind of as we went into it, I decided like, well, if we're going to do this, I'm going to learn everything there is to learn about the music industry because I know it's a nasty industry and we're going to get screwed here and mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to minimize the screwing as much as possible by educating myself. So I, that started, you know, in 1993, 94, as soon as labels were interested in us. And so then I helped run the band and figure out a lot of business stuff. We eventually, right after we broke up in the late 90s, we audited Sony and EMI, and I learned a lot through that. And then right as we broke up, I got offered a solo deal with eMusic, which you may remember before it became a big streaming service, they were trying to be an electronic label. Mm -hmm. I actually got to have a meeting with the legendary Sandy Perlman, great record okay. producer, flew to Seattle. And so I... I checked that out, and then right after we broke up, we actually made a record for another e-music startup called Music Blitz, and that's my favorite president's record. It's called Freaked Out and mm -hmm. Small, which we now own the rights to. And we did that while we were broken up. We didn't tour on it. We didn't play any live shows. But we did it because we knew somebody at the company. And then I just started to get engaged. And at that time, we didn't have a manager. We were kind of broken up, and I was managing our stuff. So I was the artist, I was the manager, like I could put two or three sentences together, I understood the business. So I started to get invited to, you know, be on panels and be, you know, a moderator at events around music and technology. Then around 2003, that company Melodia, I was on a pan an MIT Enterprise Forum panel. And one of the other people on the panel was a guy who started Melodio. Anyway, I ended up on their advisory board for a few years, and I'd restarted a career in public affairs. And after a few years of me doing that, and these guys at Melodio picking my brain every six weeks, they just wanted to hire me. During that period as well, the presidents got the rights back to our first album, the mm -hmm. hit album. And we went through the process of creating our own label, setting up distribution to iTunes, which was just starting at the time, yeah, right? yeah. and doing some other deals. Anyway, I was helping manage all that and getting educated. And so it was just, it really grew out of wanting to uh, manage our own assets, you know, and manage them fruitfully. 
And yeah, and then it's the last, it's been a while now. It's been like 13 or 14 years that I've been doing mostly music related stuff full time or digital music business stuff. So much has changed since 2007. I mean, you, you talked a lot about distribution. You talked about the experience of making albums. I mean, everything has changed. And you've kind of, I guess, seen it change multiple times now. And, and you're at Amazon Music now, um, for people who don't know. But the industry continues to change like so, so quickly, at least from, from my perspective. What do you see now in terms of musicians? I mean, do you feel like it's a completely different world if you were starting Presidents Today? Would it be a totally different experience? Um, it is different. The, well, the different good thing is that if you do have a valuable asset, it is so much more lucrative, which is hmm. what the old school grousers are not acknowledging and what the labels who have big, deep catalogs are not acknowledging. I'm going to tell you that you know we own the first president's mm -hmm. record. So it's a great, it's been a fantastic, it's like a, upper mid-level catalog record, mm -hmm. right? And it has been a perfect canary in the coal mine indicating it's tracked every change in the industry from, you know, across downloads to streaming. And I, of course, as we own the rights, I see all the data as the mm -hmm. label. And so now almost all our income comes from mm -hmm. streaming, mm -hmm. as you would expect. And so to run this business, which owns that record and a few other records that probably only contribute five or 10% of all of our revenue from recorded content. To run the business of running that hit record, our costs to run that business, you know, I'm just talking about accountant, monthly mm -hmm. accounting, and, you know, whatever legal stuff we have to do occasionally. I'm going to say our costs are like one to 2%, meaning our margin is 98 wow. to 99%. Wow. So if you compare that to the risk and the pain in the ass of like we gave up on doing physical distribution of our first record seven or eight years mm -hmm. ago 10 years mm -hmm. ago because you have to pay to press you've got to distribute you've got to deal with returns so these labels that have a huge you think of a, a sony columbia with bruce springsteen bob dylan miles mm -hmm. davis <laughs> it costs I mean, the, the margin and the profitability of these catalogs now is insane. And I would actually like to see somebody do some more in-depth reporting on that at the bigger scale. I'm intimately familiar with it at the tiny label scale. Right. But so the point being that if you do have something that's valuable, whether because it's old and you happen to have the rights to it, and we are one of very few artists who would be in that position, but some you know, labels are in that, bigger labels are in that position. It's very valuable. And if you can create something now that's valuable and keep the rights to it, you're going to profit nicely. The other big change, I mean, the biggest change is really the shift from an acquisition-based model to a consumption-based model, right? So it used to be when you bought some record in 1995, it had one song on it you liked. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> it had one song on it that you like. It cost $15. The rest of the album sucked. You played that one song 20 right, times, right. right? Or whatever, 50 times. You paid $15 to listen to that song 50 yep. times. Now, obviously, rights owners are paid per stream. 
And what that means is certain genres of music that get listened to a lot. So that pop punk band from 1996 that had the one song on the album of otherwise crappy songs, that's a much less profitable model now. But that Enya record that you bought for $15 in 1991 and you've listened to 12,000 times, that content is now much more mm. valuable in a, in a mm -hmm. consumption-based world, right? So that's the other big, so the margin has gotten better if you have something that's valuable. The, it's all about consumption now, not acquisition. You know, you can't, it's not just getting somebody to give you $15 once, it's getting them to listen to your songs thousands of times. I think those are the big differences. Other than those, in some ways, I feel like we're more back to like a 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe early 70s model before um, record labels became star mm. makers. We're back to that model where it really is about playing, you yeah. know, and a lot of obviously what Fish or the jam band world that you guys are covering at times. If you play a lot and you get really, really good at playing, <clears throat> that is undeniable. Nobody can ever take that away from you. I remember when the, the president started touring again in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, we were walking through an airport once, Chris and Jason and I, and Chris and I, I think, were carrying on our guitars at the time. And I remember Chris, we each had our guitars in our hand. And I remember him turning to me and saying, this is what I love about this job is I know I can go anywhere at any time. And if I have this thing, I can make a mm. living. I can entertain mm -hmm. people. And I love that, that return to just like, well, you're either good or you're not. There's not a bunch of machinery to really prop you up, right? In the same way there was yes. <laughs> um, when, the, when the music business, the record business was more monolithic. So I love that. And I also love how a consumption-based model is so much more democratic as well than an acquisition-based model. You know, it's like people are only going to consume stuff repeatedly if it's really, really good. So I like those trends. I, I think in general, things are better and will continue to be better. It sounds like the advice you give people who are just getting into it or trying to build a music career is just play live and, and build a following that way. Yeah, be good, because mm -hmm. it's undeniable. That's kind of, as that was the advice that Mark Sandman gave Chris right before we started the presidents. Chris, you know, Chris has always been kind of like a, I'd call him a compulsive recordist. Mm -hmm. Like he, since he got his first four track when he was 13 or whenever, he's recorded tens of thousands of hours of every kind of music you could possibly imagine. And at that time, right before Chris moved back to Seattle, he said, Mark, who, I don't know if you ever had the pleasure of meeting with him or talking with him, he had a very deep no, voice no. and he had quite a, you know, impressive uh stern countenance he just told chris like you just need to go play live stop recording for a while and go play for mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. yeah and the other thing is if you're honest with yourself when you play for people you know you know like i know i've played i've had little solo bands where i was the front man and i've played shows where i play just guitar and sing and I can tell it's not good enough. It's easy. I could just look out and, you know, I can feel the energy in the room. I can look at the way people are reacting. And I, it's just like, okay, this is not the thing for me to do with my time making music because this is clearly not what I'm good at. And it's a little bit of a balancing act because on, on the one hand, you have to be honest with yourself. And on the other hand, you have to, um, you have to suck a whole bunch of times <laughs> before you're any good at and you have to suck on stage. Another thing I tell people is, yeah, is perform. Don't just practice in your bedroom. Like, 
play for for young people i'm like you know play for your family at the dinner table play for every possible high school party go play because performing is different than practicing yeah. right you have to practice at performing it's a learned skill the last question i have for you just about seattle because we've talked about this a lot and it's obviously where, where you're from and you you've been in the middle of this like musical explosion in seattle and now you're in the middle of this tech explosion they feel like kind of polar opposites in a way, but I'm just curious if you see similarities between these two kind of uh, explosions in your home city. Wow, that's I've never been asked that question. I've never really thought about that. I think they have common roots intellectually in the sense that the earliest tech leaders, Bill Gates aside, because he was not a kind of a hippie mm -hmm. guy, but you know, Steve Jobs was a hippie, yep. right? Yep. Basically. Paul Allen famously has said that he was so into Hendrix as a young teenager and that the openness and expansiveness of Hendrix's music mm. was a big part of shaping the mentality that he applied to, you know, expanding digital technology and what software could do. So I think there is a common root there, as I said, sort of intellectually yeah. or philosophically. And the businesses in a way are similar, like, you know, in, in neither industry do we now distribute, for example, um, content in the form of software or music via hard copy. But if you think about 1997, you know, selling CDs and selling CD-ROMs was not very mm. different. So the industries are the same in that way. I guess the difference is, the fundamental drivers of the music industry ultimately are creative people, right? Who write yeah. and perform and record music. The ultimate drivers of value in the tech industry are people who create content, which are software engineers. And in some ways, they are like creative types in the music world in the sense that they tend to be a bit outside the norm and they actually embrace and like that identity, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But beyond that similarity, the whole outside the norm, fundamental kind of identifier for that I observe in kind of like software engineers is this kind of hyper rationality, right? This kind of like, uh, we're super smart. And if people would just let us run the world, we would fix mm -hmm, all the problems mm -hmm. because we would apply <laughs> this really, um, really refined um, level of rational problem solving, which just might be true. At the other end <laughs> of the spectrum, you have, you know, um, songwriters, performers, you know, record producers who, in terms of how they, I self-identify, is not about rational problem solving. It's about tapping into the nonlinear, um, you know, beyond rational, transcendent kind of capacities mm -hmm. of human beings. So, I don't know. I'm not sure that answers your questions. This is getting way out there, but in some ways they're kind of converging in a way too. At least, at least, of course, on the distribution side, if not on the creative side. But it's, you know, yeah. it's becoming kind of like I wouldn't say indistinguishable, but there's there's definitely combinations of you know tech and music that are that seem to be very very close together these days. Well, I think if you look at the way music's created and distributed now, the boundaries between writing something and producing it and recording it and distributing it are so blurred mm. that for somebody who is a post-millennial that, 
you know, you can kind of simultaneously write, make, record, and release. Uh, it, it all sort of happens in one continuous flow on one device, right? On your laptop or your tablet or even your phone. You write it, you record it, you produce it, you put it on TikTok, and that all can happen very quickly with no boundaries. And that that's kind of what you're talking about. It's all happening in one yeah. place. It's fascinating. And I appreciate you spending so much time with us because we talked about a lot of stuff. Thank you for spending all this time. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've, I can go on for hours. And well, we didn't even get into the stories. That's a whole other that's another hour and a half. We got we got through a lot. But you're right. We um, let's do it again. We'll, we'll talk more stories. Okay. <laughs> Anytime. And now I think I have to record some music. Appreciate it. And thank you for taking so much time. It was, it was really fun to talk. Thank you. And now here's Dave Dieterer performing I'd Have to Be Crazy and Moonlight in Vermont. All right, two songs, Fireside Jams tonight. Super horrible, rainy night in Seattle. It's going to rain like two inches tonight. It's grunge weather. This is the kind of night that caused us to lock ourselves in basements and garages with a case of Schmidt animal beer, look it up, and uh, turn it up. Two songs. Uh, first one's by Steve Fromholtz. Don't know anything about him. Never met him. Guessing he's from Texas because the song was made famous by Willie Nelson, who's lived in Texas mostly or a lot of the time since uh, the early 70s and was born and raised there and just lived temporarily in Nashville for a while uh, and a few other places, including Vancouver, Washington. But that's a whole other monologue. Um, I love this song. <laughs> Stamp. You'd 
say I was crazy to call for a genie while burning my hand on a lamp. And I may not be normal, nobody is. So I'd like to say before I'm through, I know I'm alright, cause I'd have to be crazy to fall out of love. Okay, song number two, there's a connection thematically. Willie Nelson covered that last song. He also covered this song. He also said this is the greatest song ever written of all time anywhere in the world. Moonlight in Vermont. On good authority from Willie Nelson. Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. <laughs> <laughs>